Hello and welcome to another episode of the Hague Journal of Diplomacy podcast. My name is Elon Medhavji and I will be your host. Now, you've heard it before that we're living in extraordinary times. And of course, extraordinary times call for extraordinary podcasts. So today to help me achieve this goal is Professor Tristan Naylor of the London School of Economics. Tristan's work, amongst other things, has focused on diplomatic summits and the social patterns of hierarchy and stratification amongst international relations. But most recently, and definitely today most relevantly, he's featured with the Hague Journal of Diplomacy to focus his interest on the impact that the COVID pandemic has had on diplomatic summits. This piece in the latest issue of the journal for the Forum on Diplomacy After COVID is entitled, All That's Lost, The Hollowing of Summit Diplomacy in a Socially Distanced World. Now, personally, what drew me into his perspective was his focus specifically on what is lost with the absence of physical presence. And this comes rather than more speculative discussions about virtual diplomacy, decision-making, and social contact. And I think by centering in on this idea, we can form more concrete conclusions about diplomacy during COVID and hopefully also after. So this is really going to be uh, the core, if you will, of our discussion today. Tristan, thank you so much for joining us. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. And thank you very much for having me. Of course, thanks for, thanks for taking the time. And usually, you know, in the beginning, I, I, I just like to dive in. And I think what might be interesting sort of to, to, to perhaps, you know, warm up our, our brains on this one is, you know, we're talking about symmetry, diplomacy, and COVID. And I think for me and, and everyone listening to get a better idea of how you have sort of framed and defined diplomacy in its summits, I think I'd be curious to know what is it exactly in your opinion about diplomacy and its summits that makes it vulnerable to the limitations imposed by COVID? Well, I think that diplomacy is, at the end of the day, fundamentally about people. What's, what's unique about summitry as, as a diplomatic practice is, is that it does put political leaders in the same room with one another to, to work out the big issues, big challenges, momentarily freed from their usual constraints. Summitry is fundamentally about flesh and blood individuals and fundamentally premised on physicality. And, and this is what COVID attacks. This is what COVID has, in different ways, taken away from, from all of us. And, and diplomats and political leaders are, are no more immune from this than any of us are. So and when I think about international politics, when I think about other institutions and other diplomatic practices, they, they might have more resilience in the face of, of this particular virus. But this particular virus makes getting together with other people dangerous. And so summitry as a practice is particularly vulnerable to a shock like COVID. So you, you talk about this getting together and um, the physicality aspect. And I know that perhaps asking me, asking someone else, we'd all have a different idea of what physicality actually is. And although you know, I can read about it, I can, I can, I can speculate, I, I have not sat in the room. I, I don't know what that looks like. I don't know how that's defined. And I know through your research, both previous and present, you've been a little closer to that than the rest of us. So, and it's, I think also to frame what we're gonna talk about, it's important to understand what you do mean by physicality. So mm. when you're speaking of that within the context of summits and diplomacy, uh, can you paint us a picture? What are you, what are you talking about? Well, I, I, I mean, individual people, 
in the same room, in the same physical space uh, with, with, one, with one another. Take, take a summit, uh, you take something relatively small, relatively intimate, like a G7, it really is seven, well, really eight uh, political leaders sitting around a relatively small table. And I think most importantly is the moments when they're not sitting around the table in a formal session, um, but they're together, they're in a room, they're, they're interacting like you, know, you and I would if you and I were allowed to actually be in the same room with one another right now. Uh, it's, it's, there, there is something about, um, I guess the fancy term is bodily co-presence. Uh, there's something about being physically with others that has, you know, has effects that just talking on the phone, just talking via FaceTime or Zoom or Skype doesn't have. This is, I think, something that's become um, all too, all too acute and all too familiar for, for so many of us uh, over the past few months of, as we've been kept away from, from our friends, from our families, from, from our loved ones. And, and at, at summits, you know, what, what these rooms are like um, they are they are spectacular environments where you've got you know, the, the top political leaders in the world extraordinarily in the same room with one another. And I say in the world with you know, something like the UN General Assembly and the, and the, the sessions usually held in September or something like the G20 or say in the European context, something like um, the EU heads of states summits. Uh, so they're, they're, you know, they, they, they're very much physical events premised on, on physicality, premised on being on, in the same room with one another. You know, building on, on what you're talking about, what I've noticed through my, my, my understanding of, uh, of these issues is that physicality also, I think, in these contexts relies heavily on subtle physicality. So mm-hmm. it's not just being in the amazing space and taking up that spot at the table behind the the placard. It's also in your interactions, the the subtle nuances, whether it's eye contact or body language, or I know you you write about, you know, more informal contact away from the big room, perhaps, maybe more in the hallway, whether it's, you, you call them brush buys, pull-asides and walk-in talks. So, in the headline sense, it's perhaps the, I mean, the photo op, if you will, right? They talk about that family photo at all these events. Uh, but then it trickles down also to the, you know, the, the small moments by the water cooler, if you will. So considering the large spectrum of physicality, the way you theorize about it, within COVID, what are the changes that you've noticed to date about physicality and the lack thereof and, and, and what actually that means for a summit taking place during the COVID era? Mm. So I, I think there are, there are sort of two, two big broad changes that I've noticed, which, which you, you hint at in, in, in a, a asking the question. Um, of course, first off, it's important to note that leaders are still interacting, but they're interacting in a different way. They're through a different medium. But with the loss of physical in-person interactions, uh, first and foremost, what I've noticed is that interactions between leaders simply command less attention. So again, thinking of the G20 as an example, when the G20 leaders fly in from all over the world to a, a single place, it's, it's front page news. It is a big, relatively rare event. 
But when those same leaders sit in front of, of a laptop at home and have a chat, it's, it's not. And I mean, it's kind of obvious, but I think this is significant because much of the, the power, much of the authority that summits have in large part comes from the, the pomp, from the ceremony, from the theater that's built up around it. The, the spectacle of, all, of it all it imbues a summit and its participants with authority, with standing in international politics. It's what makes summitry uh, a sublime phenomenon. It's the pageantry, the ritual that puts them at the figurative heights of international politics and what in part allows for what they, they say, what they decide to have broader effects on the international system. And, and quite frankly, you just don't get that from a Zoom meeting. So I think interestingly for, for theory is we tend to write all this stuff off, the, the performative, the theatrical, we see it as, or often it's seen as being insignificant, as being epiphenomenal. But it's actually really important, I think, in playing a constitutive role and giving summits power and authority in the first place. And without the in-person, without the physical, we've lost this. And then the second is you particularly point to, which is the loss of what I've, I've dubbed intermoments in summitry, these, these informal impromptu moments between the formal procedural meetings in which leaders and diplomats engage with one another through pull-asides and brush-bys and walking talks, these, these off-the-cuff moments that, again, we, in theory, typically don't pay much attention to, but any diplomat will tell you these moments matter a great deal. It's, it's in the quiet corridors, in the corners, at the margins, that things like negotiation, negotiating positions are sussed out, that ideas are floated, that trust and rapport are built. You know, these little moments can have big effects, but you simply don't have these moments on a Zoom call. When you're on Zoom or FaceTime or whatever, you're, you're always on, you're always in the meeting. There's no, there's no ability to, to figuratively step away from the table. And so we've lost this, this isn't much happening anymore. And I think this has as well, a serious effect in undermining the overall power, the overall efficacy of summitry as a practice. So what I, what I find so so interesting about this is the way you paint it, it it's almost beautifully simple in the sense if you were to sort of distill it down to layman speak, you would say summits are a big deal and so people act like it's a big deal. And you know, you can take your pick of theatrical metaphors to illustrate that, but if I understand you correctly and if I get an idea from I think maybe the G20, G20 is a great example, it, it doesn't have the same oomph sitting behind a computer. And, and maybe you're right that, yeah, you, the people working on it, everybody from the heads of state down to uh, mid and lower level diplomats and policy mm -hmm. idea makers, there's, there's less of an incentive to make a statement at statement events. But at the same yeah. time, I, I, part of me wants to push back with you on that because I'm thinking, okay, so if we, if we don't have these big landmark events, what do we have? You, you talk about being behind the computer screen and conducting it remotely. Well, first of all, in my mind, and perhaps in anyone listening to this, maybe the first thing you would think is, oh, well, that, that could be interesting though, because then you still do get that interaction, as you say, but at a fraction of the cost, first of all, right. um, you still do get that interaction, but 
you save on the hassle and the time of having to arrange it, having to go. And perhaps even, and what I find most interesting is uh, some diplomats and practitioners have actually even exclaimed that the conversation can go on longer now. You're not limited to uh, a particular speaking time at a particular event or a certain uh, dinner table, even for an informal discussion, but we can actually sort of water it down and sort of broaden the process. And is there not potential there for progress that the traditional summit would, would falter at? So, so absolutely. And, and uh, without question, there are many, many benefits to this shift to online. And, and very much in, in writing this paper, I didn't just want to focus on the upsides. I, I really wanted to focus on, well, obviously there, there, there are upsides, there, there are silver linings to this, but what do we lose? What do we lose in essence? What can't be replicated online? And then what's, what's the implication of that? If we can't have the, the informal chit chats in the corridor, well, does that matter? Does that really have an effect? And obviously I argue uh, that it does. So, you know, there, there's, no, there's no question that yes, uh, you know, the conversation can continue longer, but that also can be a problematic thing. So, you know, something about setting a hard deadline of a summit, uh, the absolute deadline to negotiate a policy and announcement being the conclusion of the summit, that has a role in negotiation where you can't go over that deadline. If your leader doesn't have something to announce at the conclusion of the summit, you've got a big problem. And, you know, deadlines matter. If, if, if the conversation can just go on and on and on and on, you don't get resolution. So summits serve a really important sort of fixed point around which everybody is um, focusing their, their energies. Uh, the other thing I, I would know is that, yeah, you can, the, the conversations can go on, can be held online, uh, either on Zoom or you know, there's more than a few papers to be written about, say, WhatsApp diplomacy. But when you're online, not only are you always on, not only are you always figuratively in the room, but you're, there's always a record. And with, with, with a pull aside, with a quiet walk and talk through a corridor, what you say, what you suggest, it's deniable. There's more freedom from maneuver. But online, there's always an audience or there's always at least a potential for an audience. And so the constraints, particularly on a negotiation, constraints on policymaking, that symmetry is uniquely able to, to do away with, those constraints end up still being there. So yeah, potentially, uh, potentially we, we, we can have more meetings and we can have greater av availability, but, but there, there are these, these drawbacks to it as well. And, and also like, like I was saying before, the meaning and the significance of meetings, of interactions gets reduced. When there's less at stake in them, then there's, there are fewer incentives to make bold, bold policy. Um, and and you know, that's, that I see as being the cost. Exactly, exactly as you, you said in, in prefacing the question, um, you're right that the, 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 well, part of the point that I'm making is really quite simple, that summits matter because we say they matter. 
And because we say they matter, then they have this broader sort of um, sublime, sublime effect. But you know, if we're just talking about online meetings, online interactions, they become just another meeting, just another uh, interaction, and they they lose their import. So then, hearing you say this, the, the the next thing I'm trying to think about that pops up in my head, and I, I I'll ask you to to think with me on this one, mm-hmm. is how do we take advantage of the benefits while mitigating the drawbacks? And what comes to mind instantly for me is is how the European Union in, again, just as everyone had to very shockingly and suddenly adapt, I think the EU maybe provides an interesting little case study and example of figuring out things on the spot and and perhaps finding a way to almost come up with a a hybrid approach, if you will. Obviously the EU known for its many bureaucratic meetings and being Mm. criticized for the cost thereof, et cetera, et cetera. They've seen an interesting move to online, but in some situations for some policy topics, uh, including some ministers and heads of state, they've decided, well, we can only do so much virtually, but at the end of the day, when push comes to shove, when we need that deadline, like you said, when we need that decision and we need that touch, we, we're actually going to go back into the room. Yes, you know, ad- adhering to various uh, social distancing and health standards, but we can get only so far virtually until we need to get back into the room. So how would you, as someone who's thought about this a lot more than most people, how would you, if you were to sort of design this hybrid approach, what would you take into consideration? Well, I think, I think that the, the hybrid model, uh, what we've been seeing the EU doing is, is almost certainly the way forward. It's almost certainly where, where we're heading. And if there are vestiges of this, this moment that we will take with us post-COVID, uh, this style of preparation for for a summit and then you know actually meeting in person is 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 almost certainly what what we're gonna end up with because you know being in the room setting deadlines having having the incentive structures for your bureaucracy set up that you need to produce something you need a negotiation by this deadline uh really matters but i i I would just note that the hybrid format really isn't something new Preparations for summits have always been hybrid. Uh, diplomats and bureaucrats don't prepare for a summit by holding a summit. They largely prepare with phone calls and emails, and prior to that with faxes, and before that with telegrams. What's, what's changed is now it's via video calls, and then the summit itself to overcome the stumbling blocks in, in negotiation. So I think, I think what we see here is a continuation of the broader uh, preparatory, the sort of the, the way that preparation for a for a summit happens, but just with different means. And and I think that what we're seeing the EU already doing, exactly as you point to, is probably the 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 new normal for how summit preparations are going to go. And and I I would note that the fact that already the EU has 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 said you know being online only takes us so far. It's, you know, we still need to conclude things in person. We still need to be in person to overcome those those final sticky stumbling blocks. Um, you know, I I I think that 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 helps at least me support support the point that the broader argument that I'm making overall that um, we cannot get online what we get in person. In order to perhaps have you uh, defend your standpoint uh, even further, I. 
I'm, I'm looking for a, a concrete example. I, I know some have said uh, that the, the most recent stages of the Brexit negotiations, for example, have been, you know, for a variety of reasons, but perhaps also due to this lack of physicality, been more cumbersome and, and, and difficult because of, you know, this, this virtual online world. Is there an example that pops up in your mind uh, that you can say, ah, yes, this is, this is what I'm speaking to. Uh, this describes what I'm talking about as an example. Uh, in 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 recent memory, no. Uh, but I think I think that's that's because it's it, there. Are, there are just too few cases to to point to, um, at least within within the, the current COVID era. But but certainly, if you if you read obsessively um, things like political or diplomatic memoirs, if you if you read accounts. Um, of people in the room at summits when when decisions are, are taken or, or, or read declassified foreign office papers. Time and time again, what you see is not, a, not accounts, not dispatches that say, you know, it was when we were in this meeting that we really decided to do X or to do Y, but it's rather we, you know, we, we had a drink. Uh, and figured it out. Um, or uh, I find that I can I can trust this person. I you know, we, we see this especially with uh, relationship building and rapport uh, establishment between leaders and, and diplomats that there's something about again bodily co-presence that that allows for affinity to be made. And this then has broader effects on, on say, political negotiations. And so, you know, um, in, a, in a way, I'm, I'm sort of dodging the question by, by not pointing to a specific example in recent, in recent memory, um, but the sort of the broader literature, broader historical literature is, is rife with examples of it being what happens on the sidelines that really, really matters. And, and again, my, my point is here that we've sort of lost those sidelines, we've lost the margins. And if those who are in the room tell us that it's the sidelines that matter, I think we should be quite worried when, when we've lost them. You know, so even, even uh, I, I, I think, you know, I, that's a very well-crafted and I think righteous dodge of that question because, yeah, when you do read those personal accounts, those memoirs, or you watch those documentaries, it's, what is it? It's always those weird stories about, oh, at 4 a.m. over a glass yeah. of whiskey, kind of thing, or in a weird exchange that we had in some hotel, we encountered each other and, and all of a sudden we came to some deal. Uh, and it is those super unique, almost almost something out of a movie you would imagine, and perhaps it's you know obviously inspired those kind of things. It, it's those moments that cut the difference. And you're right and that we've lost that to a great degree. But then at the same time, you're right that the, peop the people in the room are saying we've lost those sidelines and, and it's the sideline that, that matter. But at the same time, you and I have also been able to discuss perhaps the, the benefits of this, of this weird era we're in. And okay, we've lost sideline, but we've also you know, gained some, some space behind the goal, if you will. Mm -hmm. So in that discussion, and this is sort of moving towards, as the forum is titled, Diplomacy After COVID, in light of practitioners talking about you know, this returning to business as usual, the returning to the normal, that's what 
a, a lot of practitioners have, have been referring to. Mm. Despite that, from this experience, what, what can we bring back to diplomacy when we look at this return to normal, normalcy as a result of the, the, you know, the hop, skip and jump we've had to make with COVID? Well, uh, certainly, as, as you pointed to before, I, I certainly think that this particular configuration of the hybrid preparatory model uh, is likely to, to survive. And, and actually, I think, I, th I think that this can be a real plus to bolster inclusion in multilateral and in global governance processes. I think it's, uh, it's much easier to bring in otherwise excluded voices into preparatory meetings by way of Zoom or Skype or FaceTime uh, or whatever. Uh, so I, I think that we, we've seen evidence at least and we have the means or increasingly have the means to actually uh, make preparatory processes more inclusive than, than ever before. I think that's, that's probably a, a good thing, um, almost certainly a good thing. But you know, in, in, in the return to, to normalcy, I, one, one question is, is will, will we continue to have big, expensive, cumbersome, complicated global summits in, in the post-COVID era. And you know, I, I, this is something that I, I, I think about a lot. And indeed, the question of the continuance of, of global multilateralism is something I was thinking about even before uh, COVID brought everything crashing to a halt. And you know, I, I, I think, so the, the question really that, that we, we should ask ourselves is to what extent will, will multilateralism as a whole survive the current political, the current historical moment, uh, and, and not just with respect to, to, to COVID. And I think, I think the answer largely depends on, not just on, well, how, how well has technology allowed us to, to mitigate the negative effects here? And equally, how has technology uh, enabled uh, us to do a better job of certain dimensions of interaction, certain dimensions of, of diplomacy. But were, was multilateralism, was summitry able to raise to the challenges of the moment? Are summits, is summitry, is multilateralism able to claim that this, this is a practice that, that has value, that is this a practice that actually can change things? Did summitry rise to this particular moment? And you know, the, the big concern that I have is that it hasn't, uh, in no small part because of the factors that I, I've out, outlined. But also, I, I think, again, sort of stepping back even further from the, the particular quagmire that we find ourselves in right now, there just generally isn't much appetite for global governance in the current political context that is very much marked by by nationalism, by particularism, by protectionism. And, and again, we, you know, to, to point again to the G20 as, as an example, because I, I think it's a good illustrative one. In 2008, it really did rise to the challenge as a crisis committee. It played a, a huge role in mitigating the global financial crisis. And, but this time around, not so much. And so, you know, other questions that we should be ha asking ourselves is, well, Will people perceive these gatherings, this type of diplomacy to have value? 
or will they be exposed or will at least they appear to be nothing more than just very expensive uh, talk shops. And I think it's, I think it's very difficult to say that the G20 didn't make a difference 12 years ago, but it's much harder to make that case right now. I, I've certainly seen almost no evidence that the G20 has really added substantive value or played a, a unique, played a non-redundant role in, in really the, the twin crises of a, a global economic crisis and obviously the, uh, the COVID crisis. And, and frankly, this, this doesn't bode well. I think in there you've, you've mentioned a, a broader theme and I think it's that in the eyes of perhaps the public, are these extraordinary events and perhaps even multilateralism as a whole, is that still sort of justifiable to a public audience? But at the same time, especially when you're talking about these global crises, the public also in a very paradoxical way also expects an immense amount of coordination and problem solving on a global level. So we find this sort of tension between the two. And I think COVID has perhaps highlighted these both with a shift in how we perform this symmetry that perhaps afterwards we'll be saying, well, hey, you could do it during COVID. Do you really need to have these events? But at the same time, the standard is so high of what you need to accomplish during summits and within the world of multilateralism that maybe in a weird way, it, it is an appropriate cost, this extraordinary summit, this, this gathering of, of people uh, along with a hefty price tag and the large expectations that come along with it. So I think these are, these are ideas that, yeah, we need to continue playing with. And, and I'd highly recommend anyone who, who is interested in that to read your piece because it, it does sort of uh, present that physical aspect within it as sort of the, the, the root of these ideas we're talking about now. Let's remember, we got here from, from that core idea. And so, you know, in, in conclusion, uh, I think you've raised the right questions here. And um, the forum uh, diplomacy after COVID is a great place to explore that further, but uh, perhaps you know, I, I just as as someone who's more in tune with with the ins and outs of the field than than me, I'm curious if if I'm interested in exploring this further and I want to I want to be able to to dive into this. What do I need to be reading, watching, and listening to in order to to get a better idea? Well, I I think. Uh, on the on the literature and, and sort of the, the theoretical side side of things, I think there are some some amazing uh, papers out there right now on on symmetry. Certainly, symmetry in in in, in a time of of, of COVID. Like I, I I was just reading the the uh, the special the special issue here um, that that you published, and it's it's phenomenal. It's 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 a really nice. And I think quite rare example of academics engaging with the present political moment in a meaningful, substantive way. And I, I do mean that as in a way, a, sort of a, a backhand critique of, of academia, too often being sort of behind the ball. And I think, I think what, what the Hague Journal of, of Diplomacy has produced here is something that's like, well, look, we've got a, you know, a, a hopefully once in a generation crisis that is is being faced right now that we need we need to rise to this moment. What role, albeit particular, albeit you know relatively small, but what role can academics 
uh, play in thinking about how best to rise to the challenge and thinking about well, what comes next. Uh, so certainly reading reading work like that is fantastic. There, there are also some, some amazing accounts of uh, summitry, not just in the recent past, but I, I, I think there's, there's some great work that looks at summitry as an institution throughout history. Um, some works that, that I've relied on in, in my own research and in, in my own uh, a book that I put out last year that, that looks at this very question, sort of tracing summitry as a practice um, beginning basically in the early 19th century, uh, straight up through today. Like there's, there's tons out there, both on the theory side uh, and certainly in, in, in I, again, I point to diplomatic and political memoirs and, and whatnot as being really good sources to look for, to get sort of that, that insider intrigue um, uh, view. But then also empirically, you know, there is perhaps no more, uh, you know, the present moment we find ourselves in is an exciting time. It's also, I think, a quite frightening time, but an exciting time to be watching politics, watching this unfold, watching exactly how the global community is or is not rising to this moment. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, obviously something professionally that I, I watch, that I participate in every day. And, and you know, it, it, is, it is indeed both, both thrilling and interesting, but also at times uh, what keeps me up at night. Um, but it, it's it, all this to say, I, I think it, it's, it's a fascinating time to be interested in these sorts of questions and be, be looking, at, you know, asking big questions about, well, what's, what is next? What, you know, we will we will come out of this and what kind of world are we going to be be heading into and you know if, if you know, when something's been taken taken away you appreciate it more you see what's lost what what isn't repli replicable and and indeed in writing this paper you know i've i've been i've been studying summetry for for over a decade now intensely and it was only after all this was taken away that it really truly became clear to me what was special, what was the added value, what was the unique selling point, what was irreplaceable about in-person symmetry. And so, you know, I think I think optimism is 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 pretty tough to come by right now, but maybe, just maybe we will emerge from this crisis. Um, and indeed emerge from this, this larger historical moment with a renewed sense of purpose, with a, with a renewed sense of drive to invest in the institutions and the practices that, that can make the, the world a better place. Um, or of course, we might also just be doomed, but I, I, I would like to, uh, to, to end on, on what I hope is, is, is a glimmer of optimism that, that you know, things, things are better from here. I, I, I think we, we couldn't have picked a better glimmer of optimism to end on than that. Uh, not only you've peppered that with slight warning, but you found the bright side to that coin and I, I couldn't have said it better myself. I think that's the perfect place to, to hold this discussion today. Tristan, you've, you've contributed to the, to the latest issue of the journal uh, in the Diplomacy After COVID forum. I just want to repeat for everyone listening if they aren't interested in and where you've you know, categorized your thoughts in the most purest form. That's, that's the piece that you wrote titled, All That's Lost, The Hollowing of Summit Diplomacy in a Socially Distanced World. Thank you so much for 
taking the time to contribute uh, to the journal and also to this podcast. It's been an absolute delight to, to chat with you. Uh, thank you so much. Well, thank you very, very much. And thank you to everyone tuning in today. Please feel free to check out the Diplomacy After COVID forum, which is now online from the Hague Journal of Diplomacy. And we will see you next time.